Let's open up to uh, the Bible. We're going to be in John 3 will be the first uh, chapter that we go to, but for a little bit of context, we will work our way there uh, uh, first. Um, we, a few weeks ago, uh, spoke on the personhood and the divinity of the Holy Spirit, and that sort of kickstart what what it planned to be a, a three-part uh, mini-series that we're just going to look at from a few different angles, the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He does, because we're, we're in between... Uh, 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 teaching uh, series at the moment. We're not, we haven't found ourselves in a book of the Bible quite yet. We're going to pick up in the book of Acts uh, uh, to do some portions of the book of Acts in term four, and we'll go all of term four there. But uh, for the moment, we are taking this, this short series to look at who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And we've already established two we- uh, three weeks back now because I had a surgery and Vic filled in there for a couple of weeks. We looked at t- uh, three weeks ago that the Holy Spirit is not a force, He is not just a presence, he is not just a feeling, but he is, in fact, a person of the Godhead. He is just as much a person as the Father and the Son, and he is just as much divine as the Father and the Son. He is an eternal member of the triune Godhead, and we should honor him as such. Now, one of the ways that we honor him is that we think about him in that way, and we study him so that we can worship him Rightly, if we know about the Holy Spirit and what He does, and this goes also for the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, if we know what the Bible says about them, what they do, what they have done for us in salvation, then we are in a position to be able to rightly worship. Okay, we are we are Bible-believing, Reformed historically Christians, meaning that we believe that the mind is that first place that the Bible, by the Spirit, leads us into holiness. Worship is impossible without the engagement of the mind. Worshipful feelings are always idolatrous if they are not first led by the truth understood by the mind. So when we talk about worshiping the Holy Spirit rightly and studying the Holy Spirit, you you might feel like uh, usually when that's done, we'll lean onto the feelings and the miracles and the actions and all sorts of things. But friends, any what, what we're doing is studying the person and work of the Holy Spirit so that in our Christian life, we can rightly honor, worship, relate to, and walk with the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to be talking about what the Holy Spirit does in those initial moments or uh, 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 time of our salvation. Really, that, that time when you first place your faith in Christ, where is the Holy Spirit and what is He doing? We'll look at that. Next week, we're going to look at who the Holy Spirit is in our Christian life and what He does for us from salvation until glorification, until, until Jesus comes back. So we'll look at the Christian life and what the Holy Spirit does for us there. I, I, I trust that will be a, a blessing for you. But today, we're looking at His role in salvation. Now, whenever we're going to study uh, a topic like salvation, uh, what occurs there in salvation, it's my practice. I believe that part of the, the weight that is put on the, the role of being a teaching elder and a pastor in a church is to Fill your mind with truth from Scripture. And one of the ways that God has blessed us through history is that we have such a thing called systematic theology. Systematic theology, which is basically just theologians speak for Bible truth put into helpful categories. 
Wherever you, now, some people hate systematic theology and blindly think that they don't have a systematic theology, but everybody has a systematic theology, whether we realize it or not. So we should just be intentional theologians and embrace it. But systematic theology is basically whenever we pick up a topic and study all that the scripture tells us about it, it is immensely helpful in the life of the believer. It will be immensely helpful for you as you uh, seek to learn scripture if it is not just a conglomerate uh, bunch of verses and different topics, but if you are able with the theologians of the past and present to be able to collate them. So grab yourself a great systematic theology textbook. If you're looking for one, come and speak to one of the elders for a recommendation. But here we talk about the Ordo Salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. And it's a little bit chronological, but mostly it's just logical because most of these things occur at the same time. So we're going to speak of uh, election, predestination, outward, uh, uh, the gospel call, the inward call, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, uh, well, not death, but the rest of those, bar election, mostly they all take, take place in your heart to you at the same moment. When we're talking about the order of salvation, we don't so much mean chronology. The first year I was saved, I was justified. The next year I was saved, I, I was promoted to adoption and so forth. What we mean is that there is a logical order such that one thing logically precedes the other and is built on top of the other thing, though they're happening simultaneously. So we're going to look at a, a few of these, but just in brief for those, for who auto uh, salutis or the order of salvation is a fairly new concept. Here's what we mean by these things. First of all, and the, these are all the, the big steps that uh, you can add to these. Different theologians will have more than 10, less than 5, whatever. We, we, we take it all differently. But really, these are the answer to the question, what has to happen for a sinner to be made righteous? And what happens in the life of a Christian. What is the full orb of salvation? And here are their main headings. First of all is election and predestination, where the Father loves a portion of humanity before he has made any of us in time, before time, and he gifts them as a bride to his son. That's election and predestination. This speaks of the, the covenant of redemption, where we, we pull uh, from Scripture and we realize that there, are, there is this language in Scripture where the Father is speaking to the Son, and the Son is speaking back to the Father on the basis of a previously uh, established covenant or promise between them both. And the covenant of redemption is what theologians call that, that pact that the, whole, that the Father, the Son, in the union of the Holy Spirit, made before time that they would create a people who would fall into sin, that they would redeem them, and that that would be at the cost of the Son's blood and death who would become a human and that he would receive glory and honor at the Father's right hand if he goes and is incarnate and saves them and that the Holy Spirit would be given unto him to give to his people. This is all a part of the covenant of redemption wrapped up in election and predestination. Secondly, we have the outward gospel call. So now we fast forward from eternity past into our actual Christian life. The outward gospel call. And this is when either you're sitting across from your parents at family worship or, 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 or on the couch at home or a teacher that is speaking or a Bible study leader that is, that is teaching or a sermon that you're sitting under or you're walking past a street preacher or somebody on the street gives you a gospel tract or a workmate evangelizes you. All of those things we should all be zealous in doing. But when the human voice comes out of either a page 
or a person's voice box and announces the good news of the gospel such that you are, co you are commanded to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you, that is an essential element of being saved. Every single one of us who is saved has at some point heard or read, come to a mental understanding of the gospel. That's what we call the outward call, the gospel call, which goes to every human being that hears the human voices. And yet that is not enough to be saved. Instead, thirdly, what is necessary is the inward call. What we might also just lump together with regeneration. The inward call is not when the human friend, brother, street evangelist, pastor, tells you to repent and trust in the Savior. But when the Holy Spirit sovereignly brings you out of your spiritual grave and resurrects you, raises you into the realm of the spiritual living so that you can believe and you can repent. This voice, this call as we call it, is sometimes called effectual call. In other words, every time the preacher preaches, it fails. I tell a room of 150 to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and there is always heartbreakingly some who continue to walk as enemies of the cross. And yet when the Holy Spirit speaks that inward call to the heart of the elect, he never fails to bring them to life. That's the inward call or regeneration. Fourthly, what then happens logically is conversion, what we might lump together as faith and repentance. That is that the born-again person who has just been raised to spiritual life decides to turn away from their sin and to place their faith in Jesus alone for salvation. That's conversion. Fifthly, in the auto salutis, is justification. On the basis of that person's faith, God justifies them according to his gospel promise, which was that everybody who has faith will receive the righteousness of Jesus to their account. They will be reckoned as righteous as God's own son, and that they will therefore have all of their sins forgiven, and they are uh, 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 Satisfied, God is satisfied in his wrath against them according to the standards of his own law. We're justified. We're righteous in God's eyes. Sixthly is adoption. This is where God now, having a justified saint before him, brings us legally into the inheritance of his firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we are not just relating to God as creator and we are no longer relating to God as judge, who has justified us, but more than that, we are now relating to him as covenantal family father. So that Jesus is our older brother, he gets all of the father's inheritance, and we, in Jesus Christ, receive all of that same inheritance for us. Seventh in the order of salvation is sanctification. This is the lifelong process of being made more and more holy. It comes in two parts. Part of it is putting sin to death, and the other part is living into the fullness of righteousness in Christ-likeness. And that goes until we die. Because number eight is perseverance. The next phase which is important and necessary for the Christian life is perseverance. On the basis of all that God has done in all of those things, the Christian continues to trust in Christ and remain faithful to Jesus through the ups and downs of sanctification. It's a doctrine of perseverance. Ninth, the next part of our salvation is death. As a Christian, you need to think of death as the next step in your salvation. Not because you're getting more adopted. Not because you're getting more justified. 
but because you're getting closer to the fullness of salvation, which is eternity in the presence of Christ. And at death, you get saved a little bit more. You get saved from the presence of sin and you spend time until Jesus returns in the presence of Christ in heaven. Tenthly, there is glorification. That is when Jesus returns and gives us eternal bodies free from all traces of sin, which last forever, and that is given to all believers, both living and dead. This is the order of salvation. Now, you might wonder why we're starting there when we were going to do a a sermon on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit in the Bible, uh, as Jesus says, according to Jesus' own words, he uses the analogy of wind in John 3, and he says that the Holy Spirit is actually known by what he does. So that in Scripture, it is actually rare to have a large portion of Scripture devoted to the Holy Spirit, and it is even uh, non-existent that we have large uh, explanations about who the Holy Spirit is outside of, or what he does, outside of the context of our salvation. Because the Holy Spirit is known by what he brings about. He is not, I've heard this uh, tremendous uh, 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 example, and uh, it was an analogy, and you've heard his name now, so I'll I'll reference him. He he was our planning pastor. I heard it sitting in these same pews, Craig Island. He said that the Holy Spirit is like the, the lights at a rugby game. If you go to a rugby game and you walk away thinking that you had, you had looked at the lights all game or that you go away thinking about how great and bright and colorful and tremendous the lights were, those lights failed to do their job because their job was, in fact, just to give light to the game. So if you walk away from that game and I ask you, how was the game? And you say, tremendous, I saw every part of it, this is what happened, then I can say the lights were doing their job because you didn't give a whole lot of attention to them. This is what the Holy Spirit does to the Lord Jesus Christ. He points to, illuminates, and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. So, therefore, to study the Holy Spirit without really just studying the in-depths of our salvation is to fail to study the Holy Spirit. That's why we start here. Now, firstly, as we've gone through the order of Salutis, and I saw some of you writing them down, it it is apt for us to ask, what is the basis of all of those things? In other words, where do all of those tremendous and glorious blessings flow out of? What's the first and most ultimate thing that God does for us that then affects the rest of those blessings? And the the great reformed answer to that has been that the, the ultimate blessing out of which every other blessing flows is not justification, is not even election, but is in fact union with Christ. Because even election, we can go through every stage of the order order salutis, and what all that they really are is one expression of being made one with Christ. Ephesians 1:4 will say that our election is just that God predestinated us in Christ. His, our election is simply that we were known with Christ before the foundation of the world. When we talk about the, the outward call, we're told in Ephesians 2:17 that that's actually Jesus coming and preaching glorious picture of what the the gospel preacher does. Uh, The inward calling is, of course, the voice of the shepherd, like in John 10, verse 3, when Jesus says, I go to people, my sheep hear my voice, and when I call them, they come to me and I lead them out. So the the inward call is really nothing more than being in union with Christ as he calls to us. The, The conversion and faith, of course, the same justification is simply that we are 
united to Christ, and that applies to our right standing. Philippians 3 verse 8 uses the language of in him. Little clue. Wherever in the New Testament, and mostly it's in Paul, whenever you see the language of in him, with him, unified to Christ, that's the language of the doctrine of union with Christ, which is an eternal reality for the Christian. So in Philippians 3 verse 8, just talking about justification, he says, I want to be found in him, having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Every blessing we have is simply the fact that we are in Jesus Christ. Adoption, Romans 8 verse 17 says that we are heirs with Christ, along with Christ. We're in union with him, we get what he has. Sanctification is simply the fact that we're unified to Christ and his life and holiness is now being infused into us. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19 says that Paul pictures sanctification of the Galatian church as Christ being formed in you. Perseverance, of course, is what Jesus says in John 16. He says, because I live, you will live. Our persevering life is nothing more than the life of Christ in our souls. And of course, glorification, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, simply says that we shall be like him. That, that next and final stage of union and likeness to Christ. So all of the salvation is union with Christ flowing in glorious and blessed ways, but we're asking about the Holy Spirit. What role does the Holy Spirit do in all of these things? I'm so glad you woke up this Father's Day with that on your minds. First of all, go to John chapter 3 where I said we would be. John chapter 3 in verse 3. The, uh, uh, the first thing, I've sent you to the wrong place. John 16 verse 3. So get working. John 16 verse 3. The first thing that we'll realize that the, the Spirit does is that he does whatever the Father and the Son send him to do. So before we get into specifics, the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son sent to do and limits himself to do only that which is told him to do by the Father and the Son. So just as Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He wasn't talking of capability. He was talking of submission in the mutual relationship for our salvation. Jesus says, I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. In the same way and with that same submission, the Holy Spirit, John 16 verse 13 tells us, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. So the Holy Spirit's job, just like the Son, is to limit himself to do what he has been commanded and sent to do by the Father and the Son, which is, more specifically, today we're going to look at convicting the hearts during the preaching of the gospel, regenerating hearts, in the preaching of the gospel, and sealing saints unto God. So first of all, convicting hearts in the preaching of the gospel. Now, I trust you're in John 16. You can just go back a couple of verses into John 16, verse 8. Jesus was preaching, doing a Bible study, a great encouraging time with his disciples before he was to be betrayed and murdered. And one of the most encouraging things he could do for them was remind them of the glorious Trinitarian God that they served and his sovereign purposes in salvation. 
And so he's talking to them and encouraging them, and he encourages them this way, that the Holy Spirit would come. And in verse 8 he says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We need to realize that a a non-convicting gospel is no gospel at all. If anybody is to preach a biblical gospel, we are preaching the difference, the distinction, the separation, and the enmity between an infinitely holy God who never wants to, never will, never desires to, ever compromise on his holy, perfect, infinite standards of his law. That's the God of Scripture, not a pal that wants to give you a cuddle and sweep things under the rug, not an offended uh, uh, uncle that is, that is willing to wink at it all and give you a treat and send you on your way, a holy, infinite God that will never let a sinful person go unpunished for a single ounce of their rebellion against them. And that is the second part that offends our, our day and our race through all ages is that mankind, if the gospel is being preached rightly, is set up by Scripture and the preacher as a condemned, vile wretch. People that we love and people that we serve and people that will be buying the coffee to when we're telling them this in evangelism, yet what we must communicate and what the Bible communicates is that we are by nature under the wrath of God. Because we are by nature dead in sin, corrupting in our nature, living out the the implications and desires of the most vile hearts that can be imagined. Jeremiah tells us that we can't imagine, we can't comprehend the darkness that goes on in our own hearts. Jesus says that the scum, the filth of the earth that we do in the most vile acts is simply the overflow of the human heart. And therefore, it makes entire sense that when those things are understood... Now, one of the things about the sinfulness of man is that they will choose to not be offended by that. Or they will try. They, because they are so offended by the holiness of God and the declaration of their own sin, what we all do naturally, what our friends will do as we speak to them of the gospel, what you will do if you're here today and you're not saved, is try and find a way to wriggle out of that condemnation. I'm actually not that bad. There's somebody out there that should be sent to hell, but I'm not that sort of person. I'm actually okay. Those laws are from antiquity. They don't apply to me anymore. We will find whatever we can do to avoid that conviction so that our hearts are not cut and penetrated with the sword of the word of the gospel. And therefore, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit doesn't come and tell people new things that the preacher didn't say. He doesn't come and add knowledge that the word doesn't include. His job is to peel back the calluses of the human heart so that it is laid bare and vulnerable for the gospel, which is so offensive and damning, to slice into the human heart. It is the Holy Spirit's job. This is why we don't need to be overly insulting, rude, arrogant in our evangelism as we're sharing, if you are speaking the biblical gospel and the Holy Spirit is using it, your friends, your loved ones, your enemies, whoever it is that you're evangelizing to will be cut to the heart. It is the gospel truth of God's holiness and mankind's sinfulness that will do the slicing in the hands of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Acts chapter 2 verse 37 that 
in the preaching of the gospel that day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit had come, as Jesus says he would. And then, and then Peter stands and he preaches that they have murdered Jesus and that he is resurrected and will judge and all of these glorious things. Acts chapter 2 verse 37. As they come to understand their guilt and condemnation. It is evident that the Holy Spirit is at work because thousands will be saved in just a moment. But in this verse it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So here the Holy Spirit is he who brings conviction in response to the preaching of the gospel. There are some who have felt this in this room right now, and you have felt it and you have rejected it as much as you can. You've tried to hide from that because you think something's wrong with you. I've, I've spoken to people, I've preached, I've witnessed people in the shaking while the gospel is being preached, in the, in, in the walking away, in the, in the anger that, that, that rises up, in people not being able to sit under the conviction of the Spirit when your sin is laid out. Sometimes it has these physical manifestations of sweat and breathlessness and other times we sit there calm and we listen. But each one of us is inclined to when this is happening to our heart, try and fill in the the cuts with, with whatever we can find around us, to try and guard ourselves against this. But God says by his Holy Spirit in Scripture, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Rather, if you have felt this, if you have recognized this, if in your mind and in your heart you understand your own guilt before a holy God and that you have no way out, the answer is to listen, to lean in, and to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus who saves wretches like you. Do not harden your heart. And when, Christians, when this occurs, be willing to hear it. Be willing to be hurt so that God might heal you in your soul. For he is willing to forgive, but it is not enough simply to feel that conviction. Therefore, it is not enough that the Holy Spirit merely makes us feel that conviction. As we've said, what must happen further is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which happens because the Holy Spirit regenerates us as the gospel is being preached. So when the gospel is preached, at some appointed time in your life, this is our our third point that the Holy Spirit does, at some point in your life, Now, maybe you hear the gospel go home and years later this occurs. Maybe it occurs in the preaching. Maybe it occurs during a conversation, whenever it is. The point is that in response to and on the basis of hearing the gospel explained, the Holy Spirit not only convicts but also brings new spiritual life to the individual. What we called earlier the gospel call or the, sorry, sorry, the inward call, the effectual call call of the Holy Spirit. So John 3, I told you to go there earlier. I finally make good on my word. In John chapter 3, we'll look at verse 3 where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Very religious man, Jewish uh, aristocrat, if you would, a Christian, uh, sorry, a Jewish teacher, a Hebrew scholar. Nicodemus is speaking to Jesus and it is Jesus' imperative to make clear to Nicodemus that nothing that he has is of the spirit, but it is all of the flesh and therefore entirely unsaving. Verse 3 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is not something physical that is entered into by walking. It is not something physical that is entered into by genealogy, like citizenship on in some... Uh, 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 worldly nations, 
The kingdom of God is a spiritual reality which you can't even see without being born again, let alone entering. You cannot even see the realities that are being put on display in the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's dear son, Jesus Christ, until the Holy Spirit brings you to life. Verse 5, Jesus repeats himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A lot of misunderstandings arise here. We hear we have to be born of the water and of the Spirit, and we assume that means maybe that you have to be baptized of water and then also baptized in the Holy Spirit, not what it means. Sometimes we think that it means that you have to be born of water, like the waters break, right? That's the fleshly birth. You have to be born, and then you can be spiritually born again. Those two things have to happen to you. Also not what he's speaking about. He's rather using Old Testament prophetic language to say that the water cleanses you for purification. The temple had this. The, 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 the sacrificial systems had a system to be cleansed by the sprinkling and the washing of water before you can go into God's presence. That's what he means by being born of water and of spirit. He is talking about being a new creation. You need to be cleansed and then the Holy Spirit has to make in you a new heart, a new spirit and himself enter you. That's what he means by being born of water and of spirit. And we know this because Jesus is referring to Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 25 to 27. You can go there if you wish. I'll be reading it in full. In Ezekiel chapter 36, we hear nothing of being water baptized having to be physically born in order to be saved. Rather, the point is this. In verse 25, God says through the prophet Ezekiel to his covenant people that there is a day coming when there will be a, a new realm, a new era, a new pouring out of salvation, and this is what it will look like. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unclean, uncleanliness. And you shall, from your idols, I will cleanse you. So, so what is in the text, immediately connected to the water, it's the idea of cleansing from both sin and false gods. That's what Jesus is speaking about. And then verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give to you a heart of flesh. And I will pour my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is Jesus speaking of when he says that you have to be born of water and of spirit? It is that although you've heard the gospel, although the, the spirit has convicted your heart and you understand that you have nowhere to run, that you're, you're guilty, you're a sinner, you deserve hell, God is righteous and omnipotent, he'll never let anybody go from that. And yet, when Jesus is exalted as he who took our punishment on the cross who lived a perfect life and then raised a triumphant, glorious resurrection, never to die again, so that anybody who places their faith in him will be saved immediately. When you hear that good news, and if you have believed, then the Holy Spirit came into your being, washed you with spiritual clean water, washed you of your sins, and made you spiritually born again. That is, put a new heart, soul, spirit, mind, eyes, ears inside of you. You are now, as Paul says, a new creation. It's picked up again in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Let's say that again. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Amen, hallelujah. 
We have none of those to boast. If anything was on the basis, was in the scales of as long as there is enough works done by you in righteousness, we would never get a glimpse at salvation. But not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The same themes brought up. You need to be cleansed and you need to be new. Because if you just get cleansed, you'll get dirty again. But if by his spirit he cleanses you with water, makes you a new being, now you are sealed in this new creation. So the Holy Spirit makes God's chosen people born again at some point in their life in response to hearing the gospel. This means that the gospel ministry of any church the preaching ministry of any pastor, the evangelistic outreach of any individual, the conversations of any Christian to their family is entirely a ministry of miracles. Wherever and whenever sinners dead in their sin understand, comprehend and, uh, the gospel and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are witnessing the greatest miracle that occurs on earth today. This means that the, the church has to be a church, a body of people that is reliant on the Holy Spirit in prayer and deep reliance. Otherwise, we have no power. Jesus says in John 3, all that comes from the flesh is flesh, which can do nothing for the Spirit. He'll say that the Spirit gives life in John chapter 6. So if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have called on him and placed your faith in him, then what has happened to you, and some of you I know this has happened quite recently for you, what happened to you is not that you picked a new lifestyle, what happened to you is not that you were affected by social circumstances, what happened to you is not that you, you gave in to the oppression of some uh, uh, an, a, a ancient religion and people put pressure on you, what happened to you is not that you became a more righteous person or you entered into some kind of self enlightenment, what happened to you is not that God favored you because of anything in you. What happened to you is that God in his mercy made you a new creature, a permanent and irreversible action so that you are now in Christ and a new creation in Christ. The gospel is a story of glorious miracles. And fourthly, we see that the Holy Spirit seals us in covenant to the Lord Jesus. So we saw, first of all, he only does what the Father and the Son send him to do. Secondly, he convicts hearts in the preaching of the gospel. Thirdly, he makes us regenerate at some point in our life, makes us born again. And fourthly, he seals us in covenant to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard expounded so wonderfully over the last few weeks, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 reads, In him, that is in Christ, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So now we see that this is something that is reliant on or, or logically after your belief. You've been regenerated. You believed with your new heart. You have placed your faith in Christ. You were justified. You were adopted. All of those other things Something that the Holy Spirit did there is that he sealed you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Placed the seal of God upon you. He closes the hatch behind you in salvation. He locks the door of the ark as the floods of judgment 
are coming. The other analogy is of a, a wax seal that, the, that a royal might put upon a letter or something that he owns so that it is marked out and not allowed to be touched by anybody else but under his sole authority. The Holy Spirit seals us in this way to the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will never undo. The idea of the seal, the door that the Lord God closes by the Holy Spirit, the, the, the hemming us into Christ, the only one who can undo that is God himself. Which means that you are to fear a capricious God who will at some point, if he saved you out of his sheer mercy, you better fear for your eternal life that he might just one day unsave you because of his justice. Why not? If it was all from his grace and mercy, you are at his whim if he wants to kick you out. Welcome to the assurance of salvation of Islam, where God, Allah, is entirely capricious and he does what he wants and what he does is just, and there is no promises. But friends, we have in the scriptures not just a story, not just a fact that the Holy Spirit does these things, that God in his triune work does these things up until you are saved, then we have his own sealed promises in covenant that he will never undo them, but only ever take his children from glory to greater glory. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 will say again, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You weren't sealed until the day of your next temptation, and we'll see how you go. Sealed until the day of your next trial, and we'll see how you fare. Sealed until the day of your death, and then we'll weigh up your good works and your bad works. You were sealed until the day of entire and full eternal redemption, when Jesus comes back and gives to you that new body in a new world. You were sealed by God, for God, through God. You were sealed until the day of of redemption. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to seal us in Christ. So though you are weak in yourself, you have the sealing of the Holy Spirit upon you. Though you are often tempted for sin in your life that we have too often given into, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. Though we may be a new Christian, not know as much as the people around us, not have as much experience, still be very vulnerable to the temptations of the world, which we are still so easily swayed by, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in no less manner than the most mature and aged Christian. Every single Christian has in their life the Holy Spirit's seal put over them so that God himself is given to us in permanence, for such is the covenant of the holy God who cannot lie. Let's dig into this word covenant before we close. The reality is that, that the scripture does not just speak of the gospel as, as, a, as a word or as a fact or as a suggestion. It's not even just a promise. The difference between promise and covenant is that a covenant is a set of promises sealed by blood, sealed by oaths, so that if they're broken, it's not just a broken promise, but there is punishments on the one who broke the promises. It's, it's the perfect mix between contract and promise is the covenant. And when we speak of all of these promises in the gospel, what God has done for sinners is graciously promise glorious blessings to those who have faith. And those promises were sealed by the blood of Jesus and sworn on the unchangeable nature of the eternal God himself. 
So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 and 25 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He uses covenantal language about the gospel because it's more than just news. It's more than just a promise. It's news which is promised and sealed. Jesus is the head, the guarantor of a better covenant than the old covenant. And because he continues forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words... When is the expiration date for the gospel promises? They were made in Jesus. We were told that as long as Jesus is resurrected at the Father's right hand, we have an advocate for sinners and we can make good on those promises. The question that Hebrews chapter 7 is asking, when is the expiration date? Because as a Hebrew, we have a priest and then he dies. So when does Jesus die and all of his priestly promises of sacrificial offerings cease? And the answer is, since he is God in flesh and he can never die, there is an eternal, infinite application to all of his promises in the gospel. They can't pass away. There'll never be such a thing as the worst day in your life that just falls outside of Christ's ability to save. There's no such thing as falling in sin too late in your life too far into your maturity so that it's so embarrassing and now I'm beyond his reach. There's no such thing as being too far from the death of Jesus Christ. From 2,000 years to 200,000 years, the blood of Jesus is eternal in its power and application and shall never lose its power until all the church of God is ransomed and brought home. It is eternal in its efficacy because he is eternal in his life. Hebrews 8 verse 10 will go on to say, quoting of the Old Covenant, quoting from the Old Testament rather, speaking of the New Covenant, which is a better covenant in Jesus, he says, I will put my laws into their minds, not just on tablets in a temple. I will write them in their brains, into their minds. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is a promise of permanence. God didn't just say, they will be a people. I will make them a distinct and separate people out there. He joined himself into the promise so that if we fail, if we fall, if we don't make it to the end in the people, it's not just a person that fell. It's not just you that lost your salvation. It would be God that failed. It would be God who lost one of his people. And he promised he would never do that. But he would make us saints. And he would be forever our God and make us his people. It's a promise of permanence. Hebrews 9.15 likewise says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. The promised eternal inheritance is the Holy Spirit. He comes to us as the great gift of God. God has, I've heard it said, he has nothing more to give. He has nothing more to give. The Father, in trying to save and redeem sinners, gave of himself, gave from himself, 
gave to us the exact imprint of his nature in the thing and person that he loves and adores beyond all comprehension, his son. And at the return of his son, seeking to bless us with something great and glorious, now that we are in his son, had yet the Holy Spirit to give. And he was the eternal inheritance, so that the fellowship of the Father and the Son, which is the Holy Spirit, was sent to us, and he seals us now into the blessed and glorious and holy Father, Son, and Spirit. By nature, we are not like them, but by covenant, we are joined into their love. And this is a promise and a covenant of permanence. So, in closing application... Do not let an overexcited flavor of Christianity out there with the better lights and fog machines and whatnot, don't let that flavor of Christianity tempt you to call the work of the Holy Spirit what is actually immaturity, fleshliness, and carnality. Don't let an impressive church movement, church building, more impressive and charismatic pastor with better healing abilities don't let all of that tempt you to think and to call and to have, have, have an envy for that which God would in fact call carnality and fleshliness and worldliness. We must also not let ourselves swing so far that we step away from any knowledge and study and worship and adoration of the Holy Spirit. Rather, we must be Bible Christians. And where the, the Holy Word shows to us that the Holy Spirit is at the center of all of this work to make us one with Christ. Where we see that, we should worship the Holy Spirit through right knowledge, appropriate feelings and emotions, and follow it up with obedience and application in our life. We don't crave, let me say this, we crave for a work of the Holy Spirit even to the point of a great and mass revival. I don't care if that makes you uncomfortable. Your pastors are praying for it. We pray for it every time we gather. That the Holy Spirit would bring in a great harvest of souls because it's not more biblical to just see one or two so people don't get too excited. We seek to see the Lord Jesus Christ receive that for which he bled and died for. Many, many souls added to the number. We, we honor the Holy Spirit and in that way, and we expect that when that happens, as we read in history, it has tremendous and sometimes uncomfortable ways that it looks. Yes, in the pews, people might fall down. Jonathan Edwards would say that during his preaching, people would cling to the poles and scream because they felt that hell would open up beneath them. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Yet, none of that is to be sought after. Any kind of wanting to know that the Holy Spirit has worked because you felt a burning in the chest... Any kind of expectation to see that regeneration will, also, will always follow with some kind of butterflies or that a, a biblical sermon where the Holy Spirit was active and, and some kind of step forward in sanctification will always look like a more glowing face or tingles in the hands or a fainting fit. We must reject all of that. Not because those things in themselves are some kind of demonic but because those things are not what we seek. We seek an understanding of the Holy Spirit, which as Jesus said, is often invisible and unnoticeable, except for the fact that people are born again and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and exalting him. That is what we seek. That is what defines a great move of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit can do cannot be overstated. He does what the Father and the Son send him to do, as eternally covenanted together. He convicts hearts that are under the preaching of the gospel. 
He regenerates sinners by giving them a new spirit. He seals believers for a permanent salvation in Jesus Christ. And he unites us to Christ in that eternal covenant. Friend, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news is on offer for you today and every day until you die. We see in Scripture it's spoken of a way that do not wait for tomorrow. Today is the day of reconciliation, of redemption, of salvation. That the Holy Spirit, through the words of a mere man, through the words written down by mere men on paper, through these things the Holy Spirit is pleased to apply to you the greatest imaginable promises that God has said from eternity past. And what you must do is simply respond to the drawing and the pulling of the Holy Spirit. Think of Jesus Christ living perfectly, dying in your place, and raising from dead, never to die again. Believe on that. Call on him to save your soul. Call on him to forgive you of your sins, and this day you will be saved. No one calls on the name of the Lord and is then put to shame. Let's pray. Father God, it is our great blessing and privilege to be in your presence this morning where we can meet with you under your word and we can be shaped by your word. Where the word that you spoke through your son, the word that you have written down by your Holy Spirit in the hands of men, we can now gather and meet you. We thank you, Lord God, for this this wonderful covenantal gift of your words on paper to understand. And we do pray, Lord God, that it would change us and affect us and transform us, that no one would leave here this morning in the same state of mind, committing the same sins, feeling the same way about themselves and the gospel and the world and their uh, sinful state or anything like that, that we would, we would have every area of our mind and heart transformed because such is the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord God, that for those who are still sitting here and have known now and have, and have realized in their sitting and in their hearing that they are outside of Christ, that they have not received the Holy Spirit, that they are still condemned under your law and that they will be pursued by your wrath into an eternal damnation. Father God, to them, however old or young, however frequently they've been in church or recently they have begun to attend, would you give to them a new heart? God, in your great mercy, would you wash them through the washing of regeneration and would you gift them to your son? Lord God, for those of us who know you, would you send us out in the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience and holiness to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer and King and Savior. And everybody said, Amen.